We're in a series called ID, and we're going through the book of Ephesians. We've been going through it sort of slowly, and today actually marks a huge turning point in the book. And so I want to talk to you for a minute about that. But before we do that, I want to throw a riddle your way. Some of you are riddle people. Some of you hate riddles. If you hate riddles, just don't listen for the next 15 seconds. But if you like it, I'm going to give this riddle three times, and uh, I want you to try and think of what this could be. All right, here it is. You believe in it, but you have a hard time practicing it. You long for it, but you sacrifice it quickly. Uh, when, uh, when it's bad, the worse, it becomes the worst torture. When it's good, it is truly a taste of heaven. It can rip your heart out and consign you to hell. It can draw you into the very arms of God. Okay, I don't want you to guess out loud. I just want you to think about that. And as you do, look down at chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 1. Because what we want to do is we want to make this transition in the book, and then we're going to talk about our topic. Now, I love our topic today, because whether you are a longtime churchgoer, you consider yourself a devoted follower of Jesus, that he's very important to you, this is going to be a just hit you right between the eyes. But if you're someone that has come in today, and maybe this is your very first time you've ever been at church, maybe you're just checking the God thing out, you're wondering what Jesus is or who he is or how that whole thing works, this also uh, really hits in the center of you as a person. And in other words, this hits a gamut of people. And so uh, I think that it'll be super relevant for everybody in the room. And by the end of the time, I'm hoping that it actually uh, works in your heart to, to create some change. That's what we're looking for. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, uh, Ephesians 4 tells us how many chapters have we already looked at? Three, okay, and this is a huge turning point, and this is the way that Paul, the person that wrote this, uh, writes it. He says, why don't we read it together? It says these words, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Okay, now this marks a turning point because up to this point in the book, the focus of Ephesians has been exclusively to tell you what God has given you. All three of the chapters doesn't focus at all on what you should do, on any responsibilities that you have. The first three chapters are completely just sort of this, this avalanche of things that God has given to people who are committed to Jesus. That's basically what happens in the first three chapters. And now he's going to make a shift to talk about responsibilities that you and I have because of what God has done, because God has done all these things, here are the responsibilities that you have. And he says it this way. He says, uh, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That word for live, the, live a life, the live part is actually better translated walk. That's literally what it means. It, what it's saying is walk in a life. And the main point that you need to understand there is this is a process. You don't just immediately do all the things that Ephesians, the, the last three chapters of Ephesians, is going to talk about. It is a process. It's a growing process. You learn to walk in this process. But then there's this phrase, a life worthy of the calling. What does that mean? And uh, I'm going to use a movie clip 
to help you understand a little bit about the meaning of this. How many of you saw the movie Saving Private Ryan? Okay, most of you. Uh, some of you didn't, so let me just tell you a little bit about that movie. That movie is a story about a guy, Private Ryan, surprisingly, who is captured, or not captured, but he's behind enemy lines in World War II in a very dangerous spot, and he has three brothers, all of whom have been killed in battle, and so the general of the army finds that out and decides that four, no family should give all four of their sons. So they send a platoon behind enemy lines, again, a very dangerous assignment, to save Private Ryan. And as they do it, most of the platoon gets killed. And right at the end, as they're being rescued, as, as the, what remains of the platoon and, and Private Ryan are there, the captain, played by Tom Hanks, is shot, mortally shot and wounded, and he grabs Private Ryan as he's dying. The last thing he says as he grabs this young kid and pulls him to him is he says, earn it. And the message is clear. People have died for you. You better live a worthy life. And the clip we're going to show you takes place 50 years later. Now Private Ryan is a 70-year-old man. He has lived his life. And I want you to see how those words have weighed on him. Watch this. with you, I, I wasn't sure how I'd feel coming back here. Every day, I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I earned what all of you have done for me. James? Captain John H. Miller.
Well, that's a very uh, powerful scene, great movie. And it kind of brings up the question, is that the attitude we should have as we turn to Ephesians 4? After all, in the first three chapters, we've been told that the Father has adopted us. We've been told that he stops at nothing to protect us. We're told that we receive an inheritance, that we're declared righteous. Even though we're not righteous, we're declared righteous. Paul goes to great lengths to tell us that we are God's masterpiece. That's how he sees us. And finally, we understand that just as somebody had to die in this movie to give life, we all sit here as children of the Father because somebody died. Jesus died to put us in that position. And so, of course, the question is, is this the attitude we should have? Should we sort of carry through this heavy responsibility now? Maybe even sort of a guilt-laden responsibility. This is the least you could do. This is the least you could do after what God has done for you. And here's what I want to say. I love that movie, and I love that scene. But that is absolutely not the attitude God wants us to carry. That is not the motivation. The motivation is not, you better, you ought, you should feel guilty if you don't. If you don't measure up, you'll need to wonder about that your whole life. But if you don't measure up, it's not good enough. That clearly is not the attitude that God has. He does not put that burden on our back and say, walk through your life with this this sort of guilt-laden weight to see if you are worthy enough for what God has done for you. So let me give you another illustration that's a little lighter than that one, I promise. All right, how many of you are Trojan fans in here? Yeah. Okay, okay, good. How many of you are UCLA fans? Oh, sorry, I'm going to have to use a UCLA illustration here. Sorry, Trojan fans. Uh, it's been a rough, rough couple of years, I understand. But anyway, UCLA, okay, so picture yourself as a recruit coming to UCLA in football, and you're there with some other recruits, and, and uh, the coach, uh, Neuheisel, right, Coach Neuheisel, you know, sits you down in a room, and he spends 15 minutes of his best pep talk just explaining to you the tradition of UCLA, the tradition of the Bruins, and right after that, he cues a film, and you see this amazing highlight reel of all the greatest plays that have been made in, you know, the last 25 years in UCLA football. Trojan fans would say that'd be about 13 seconds. But no, we're not, no, there's this amazing thing, and it's just this incredible deal. And so your heart is pounding, and then uh, the coach takes you into the state-of-the-art weight room and says, this is the place that you'll be building your muscles and working out and becoming a team. And then he takes you into the locker room, and it's state-of-the-art and so cool, and he shows you the locker that you would have, and just this amazing, you know, the, the game rooms that you go where you'll see the films. And then as the ultimate highlight, he takes you to the Rose Bowl. And as you walk in, uh, it's been cued and these speakers start blaring the sound of 70,000 fans just going totally crazy in the Rose Bowl. And you start playing the, the UCLA fight song. And he turns to you and he says, men, walk in a manny, manner worthy of this call. Be worthy to be a UCLA Bruin, to be on our football team. Walk in a manner that is worthy. 
And you would go away not feeling like guilt-laden or this heavy responsibility. You would be so inspired. You'd be just like, let me at him. I'll do anything. I am so excited to get the opportunity to play UCLA football. And what Coach Neuheisel would say to you is, don't waste this opportunity. This is an only few people get this opportunity. Don't waste it. You have been positioned perfectly to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. And that really is, as we hit the last half of this book, that's what you need to think of. Not, oh my gosh, I got to do this. You know, I should do it. I feel guilty if I don't do it. It's more of the attitude of you get to do this. You've been positioned perfectly. All right? So are you excited about that? Woo! Woo, woo, woo! Okay. Now, let's go back to our riddle, because this is what I want to talk about now. Okay, so, and now we're going to make a guess, okay? So you've been given a chance to think. You believe in it, but you have a hard time pursuing it, practicing it. You long for it, but you sacrifice it quickly. When it's bad, it's the worst torture. When it's good, it's truly a taste of heaven. It can rip your heart out and consign you to hell. It can draw you into the very arms of God. What is it? Love, good, and that, that's definitely a piece of it. Faith. Faith, good. That's a great answer in church. It's not the right answer today, but it's a great answer for church. And here is the answer. Look at verse 3, Ephesians 4, 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Today we want to talk about community, and it's a very interesting thing that as Paul makes this turn, the very first thing he's going to talk about by way of responsibility, by way of opportunity, by way of you get to do this, is community. You get to pursue unity, which really, to be honest, if I was guessing, would be the first thing Paul would talk about. That's not probably what would come into my mind. Pursue unity. That's the number one thing you need to think about when you think about the responsibility now that God has given you. But that's what Paul is going to focus on here. And actually, actually, if you take uh, a few moments and consider a couple of other things that are taught by Jesus, it actually is not such a surprise. It's actually a really uh, great choice for the first topic Paul is going to hit. And here's the reason. Unity changes people. Unity changes people. And you know what, what else? Disunity changes people, right? Unity changes people, and so does disunity. Good community changes people, and so does bad community. Unity, community, is a very, very powerful thing. And I want to tell you some, one of the most amazing things, and you've never thought of this, I bet. Jesus once, it's recorded in here, Jesus once actually prayed for those of you, individuals, Bill, Mary, Bob, John, Tom, Kara, Julie, Kate, all of you, he prayed specifically for you. It's only recorded one place in the New Testament where he makes a prayer for you. And I'm going to read it to you, okay? So just listen. We're, we're not bringing it up on the screen. I just want you to listen. It's in John 17. This is right before he gets betrayed, right before he dies. He makes a prayer for you. And listen to what this prayer is all about. 
Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone, talking about the disciples that he's with currently, and he's praying right now. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And who is that? That's us. We're the ones that believe because of the the disciples' message that's recorded in the Bible. So this is a prayer for us. And here's what it says. That all of you may be one. Unity. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be uh, in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And now Jesus is saying a lot of things. It's happening very quickly. But he's saying basically this. Unity changes people. And he's not talking about any sort of mamby-pamby community. He's talking about this really amazing community, the kind of community that actually God the Father had with God the Son. I mean, this is like mega community, community on steroids. This is really tight community. And he says, it changes people. It changes people. That's why I want unity for this group that's going to come following the disciples. And he says, not only does it change the disciples, not does it only does it change you, it changes people that look at you and watch you, and see how this unity works. It has this amazing transformation power. He goes on to say, I have given them, that's us, the glory that you gave me, that they may may be one as we are one. In other words, there's a supernatural ability that God gives us to be unified. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And so Jesus makes this incredible prayer for you. Jesus prayed specifically for you 2,000 years ago, and his prayer had to do with this thing called unity. So maybe it's not surprising that Paul's going to say, here's the first responsibility. You need to pursue unity as much as God has pursued it with you. That's what you get to do. That's what you get to do. So he's going to give us some help here. He's going to talk to us about how we pursue unity, how we can do this thing uh, called building community. And uh, he starts actually back in verse 2. So go back to Ephesians 4.2. And he's going to give us, in this charge of keeping the unity, he's going to say there's a certain character that unity has. There's certain character qualities I want you to pursue. And here's the first one. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So he's going to give this sort of list of character qualities that he says helps with unity. And it's very interesting because Paul is now making a list of character qualities that in the Greek culture, in the Roman culture of the day, were considered terribly poor. They were considered the virtues, and not even virtues, I guess the vices of weakness. No self-respecting Greek, no self-respecting Roman would ever pursue humility, gentleness, or patience. Those were the signs of somebody that was a wimp. Those were the signs of somebody that couldn't take control of a situation. Those were the signs of somebody that was not the captain of his own destiny or the captain of her own destiny. In other words, he is actually listing something that for people that didn't follow Jesus, people that don't have that mindset, they would say, those are stupid qualities. Those would not be the qualities that I would ever want to pursue. And Paul knows that as he lists these qualities. This is part of the upside-down kingdom. This is a different way of looking at life. 
So let's just talk for a second about these qualities, and I'm not sure I need to go into great detail about them. You probably have sort of an idea of what they mean. But let me just, I want to um, kind of hone in and give you a very tangible way to think about each of these. Because, of course, the question is, do we have them? Do we have these qualities? Okay. So let me talk about humility first. Great story, true story, about a woman last century who dated two of the most powerful men in England uh, back around uh, mid-century. And uh, one's man, one man's name was Chamberlain, the other one was Disraeli. And she happened to date both of them. And later on in her life, she was asked, what was the difference between the two men? <clears throat> and she said, when I walked into a room with Chamberlain, I had no doubt I was with the greatest one in the room. She said, when I walked into a room with Disraeli, I had no doubt that I was the greatest one in the room. And that is what humility is. Humility works to raise someone else up. Humility is not concerned with my own reputation or how good I look, what other people think about me, that I am the captain of my destiny. Humility says, if you're with me, my one job is to exalt you. My one job is to make your life better. My one job is to raise you up. That's what humility says. How do you do on humility? Very hard quality to pursue. We are not wired that way. We are not built that way. When Paul says, humility, be humble, that's what he's talking about. How do you do? The second quality is gentle or gentleness. And this was an interesting term back in the day. This term was actually used, meekness or gentleness, was used for a bit that was put into a horse's mouth because the idea is the bit could control this very powerful animal. In other words, just a tiny piece of metal could turn the horse's neck and make the horse turn left or right or stop. Uh, it had this incredible power to control all of this might, all of this strength. And that's what gentleness is in your life. When you have the quality of gentleness, what it says is I have this quality that controls this power that there is in me, that this ability to do things. And any time you throttle it back for the sake of another person, that's called gentleness. It's not that you can't do something. It's not that you don't have the right to do something. It's that you say, in light of this situation, in light of this other person, even though I could power over them, even though I could demand my rights, I'm going to choose, <coughs> excuse me, just hit puberty. It's an exciting time for me. Um, I'm going to choose, <laughs> this goes with the hair thing, I think. Uh, okay. So I'm going to choose, I'm going to choose to throttle it back. I'm going to be gentle. I'm not going to be harsh. Which again, for most of us, is just our natural fallback. We get into a situation and somebody does something we don't like, or we have the ability to sort of control the situation. We jump in and do that. Gentleness is when we say, no, I'm not going to do it that way. 
That's gentleness. And then the last one is patience. And we all know what patience is because we're told if we're a patient person and we hit a situation that's out of control, we are told to count to... Are you not told to... We are told to count to... Ten, right? Count to ten. Slow down, you know? If it's really bad, count to a hundred. You know, if it's, if it's just beyond imagination, count to 10,000. Whatever it is, you need to count so that you slow down and don't act rashly, that you don't just push back. And that's kind of a passive understanding of patience, and that is true. That's part of what patience is, is not rushing in. But here, Paul modifies it by saying it's not just being passive, it's actually being active. And here's how he modifies it. He says, bearing with one another in love. And this is an active statement. This means that when you come on somebody that's weak, or you come on somebody that's failed, somebody that's let down, somebody that needs help, that you're actually going to actively pursue helping them. And this is a hard call, too. I think all three of these virtues are very difficult, and we need God's strength to do it, because we naturally say, we may be patient, we may not erupt, we may not be rash, we may turn around and say, well, I did a good job of handling that situation without exploding, but Paul here would say, but there's another step. It's not just, you know, not exploding. It's turning around and saying, how can I help you in this situation? How can I pitch in and make your life different? And I know exactly how it feels. Yesterday, I, I received a phone call from somebody that I knew was in trouble, and I was just thinking, I don't want to answer the phone. I don't want, I don't want to deal with this issue. And so reluctantly, finally, I answer the phone, and I talk to the person. Sure enough, in trouble, we talk for a while. And so I know exactly what the feeling is of saying, I don't want to actively pursue it. It's just a lot of hard work. But that's what we're called to do. And here's the bottom line. Paul says, if you pursue these virtues, you will move in the direction of unity. These are the virtues of unity. They aren't the only virtues of unity, but there are three of them. These are the virtues of unity. If you pursue those, people's lives will change. You will change people's lives if you pursue these virtues. A few years ago, uh, Mr. Rogers was given a lifetime achievement for an Emmy Award. And he got up, and there were accolades that were given to uh, Mr. Rogers about the impact he's had, especially in children's lives. And he stood up. And uh, among the things that he said in his brief acceptance speech is he said, um, you have people in your life that have loved you into being. Isn't that a great phrase? Loved you into being. Loved you into being the person that you are. And then he actually sat there on national TV where every second is like, you know, $100,000 and he said, I want to give you two sec or 10 seconds, rather. And he said, I'll time it. I'll give you 10 seconds to just think of the people in your life who have loved you into being. And I thought, our time probably isn't quite $100,000 a second. So I thought I'd give you 10 seconds to just think for a second about the people that come to your mind when you say, these people have loved me into being the person I am. So I'll give you 10 seconds. Think about it. And here's what I want to tell you. 
Whatever people came into your mind, I'll bet they showed some of these virtues. I'll bet you there was a humility about them, at least when they came to you. I bet there was a gentleness and a patience where they actually chipped in to help you, even when you weren't at your best. And this is what we're called to be. This is part of walking in a worthy manner of our calling, is when we display these virtues. So that's the first thing Paul's going to say. We're going to come back to it in a minute because I want you to reflect personally for you. But that's the first thing, the characteristics. Here's the second thing. There is a focus to unity. There's a focus to unity as well. And the focus picks up in verse 4. Uh, let's, I think we'll bring it up on the screen. Let's read this together. It says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, so it's kind of a weird thing. He jumps into very practical teaching about character qualities that we should display, and then he moves to a very theological statement about God being the God of one, right? God, he's one baptism, one Lord, he's, you know, over all, in all, through all. Sort of this idea that there's one unifying idea. And uh, the idea that Paul's trying to get here is it's not enough just to pursue character qualities. You have to keep your focus, your, your attention, on the one that calls us to be one, which is God. God calls us to be one. And in fact, not only does he call us to it, uh, clearly in the first three chapters, even in this statement, we see he goes to great lengths to make sure that he presents himself as one and that we pursue oneness. In other words, it's important to him. And let me illustrate this maybe this way. Julie and I have four children. We have two boys that are older that live back in Charleston. Fortunately, our boys have really been best friends of each other their whole life. They're, you know, in their late 20s now, uh, early to uh, mid to late 20s. Um, but let's say, just for the sake of this illustration, that they got into a huge fight with each other. And the fight was so bad that it actually just caused them to hate each other. And so they would not talk to each other. Whenever we had family get-togethers, they wouldn't even be in the same room with each other. They were just really, really hostile toward each other. Well, Julie and I could look at that and say, well, you know, that sucks for them. But we're still, Julie and I still love each other, and that's good. And our girls still love each other, and we love our boys. And after all, we're still a family. We still all have the last name, same last name. It's really, it's really okay. Not that big of a deal. So let me just ask you, for those of you that have kids, and probably you don't have to play if you have kids, is that how you'd handle that? You just go, it's not that big of a deal. No, you would say, I've got to do something about this conflict between my boys. This is not a good thing. We can't be a family, really, when there's this hostility within our family. We really can't be the family that we want to be, even if things are good with Julie and me and it's good with the girls and all these other things. We cannot be the family. And that's really the idea that is given in this passage is God has gone to great lengths to bring unity into his family. And here's the reason. is because when his family, when we, the church family, do not have unity, it has a tremendous impact. It has an impact within the family itself, and it has an impact on those that look at the family. When we were, uh, years ago, we moved to South Carolina to take over a church. It was a young church, a small church, uh, smaller than we are now. And 
as we came in, there was a huge division in the church. It was between two major families that um, both were founding families of the church. And as we came into that situation, I am not a conflict person, and so I tried to make the best of it. I tried to overlook it. I tried to paint it so that it wouldn't look so bad. But it finally, after a few months, it got to the point where it's like, this clearly is not working. This is clearly a problem. Uh, It's impacting every other person in the church. It even impacts people that want to come and visit our church because there is this hostility in our church. There is this lack of unity. And so finally, I went through just a terrible process. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in ministry of going through this process of identifying a particular person that was causing the, the root of this disunity, going through a process of confronting and admonishing and holding accountable and encouraging and so forth, finally to the point where this person who was the founder of the church, the biggest giver in the church, left the church uh, because he didn't want to be involved. And it was just grueling. It was terrible. And I stood up in front of the church. I was looking back on the message that I gave as this was unfolding. And it was just titled Unity. And I said this to our church. I said, listen, we will be a unified church. Now that we've gone through this, we will, there may be all kinds of things that we aren't, but we will be unified because we have paid too great of a price not to be unified at this point. That doesn't mean that we all march in lockstep. It doesn't mean that we never disagree. It doesn't mean that we're everybody's best friend. It means that there will not be conflict that destroys the unity. We'll handle conflict well, and we will be a unified church that loves each other. And we as a church do not need to go through that for me to make the same point. We will be a unified church. If nothing else is said about our church, it's going to be said, Mariner's Church, Huntington Beach, man, do they love each other. They really do. And they love people that come in. They are a loving, loving, unified church. That is what, as your pastor, that is where we go. That is what we live for. That's the hill we die on. The final thing that Paul is going to say is he's going to talk not only about this idea that we have character qualities we need to pursue for unity, we have, uh, we have sort of this focus because God is unified, we will be unified as well. Finally, he says, each of you have been given a part to play. And I don't want to read the whole section of scripture because um, McGuire last week did a great job teaching on this. But he says in verse 7, he says, uh, and this is the participation of unity, he says, uh, but each one of us, grace has been given, uh, grace has been given us as Christ apportioned it. And what he's talking about, that's kind of a weird way to say it, but what, here's what he's saying. He's saying all of you have been given gifts. All of you have been given certain skills, certain abilities, certain, certain uh, sort of attract to go on where you participate and your participation actually, the diversity that we all bring actually meshes us together into this this sort of uh, unified, powerful group. And he, he says it this way. He says, all of you have been proportioned or apportioned a part of grace. And really, that's just a, a code word for a gift. All of you have been given at least one gift. Most of you, more than one gift. You've been given gifts. Then he goes on to say something that theologically is very tricky about descending and ascending and 
passing out gifts and all that kind of stuff. And I know Jeff didn't talk about it last week because I was here, and I'm not going to talk about it. So go get a commentary, and you can figure that out. But here's the main point that I want to make. Here's the thing that I want to tell you. Jesus goes to great lengths to give you a gift. That's the point of the passage about the descending and, you know, did he descend into hell or where is he descending? And he comes back and comes out. And the idea is that Jesus went to great lengths to make sure that you, all of you, got a gift. That's kind of the point of that passage. And then the point is, we can't be unified unless everybody uses it. Everybody has to participate. And I think there's two reasons that we don't. One is we're given this gift. Whatever your gift is, maybe it's a certain kind of personality where you're really outgoing and vivacious and vibrant and people are drawn to you and it's just an amazing thing and you have that kind of a gift. Uh, For some of you, it may be a gift that you're really good at analyzing things and picking things apart and figuring things out. Some of you may be given a gift of teaching or you're given a gift of supporting people when they're doing things. I mean, there's all kinds of gifts that are listed in the New Testament. All of you are given something And the point here is it's very easy because those are powerful gifts to just turn them inward and say, well, I'm going to use this for my benefit. I mean, all of us are tempted to do that. I'm going to use this for my benefit. And what Jesus says is that's not the reason for the gift. The reason for the gift is not for you. It's actually for everybody else. It's to make sure that the church is unified and functioning in the way that it can. And so the first thing is if you have a gift, you should figure it out and you should use it. But not just for yourself. You should use it for others. You should use it for the church. But then secondly, I think, and this is actually, this happens more, is we're given a gift, but we don't have very much confidence in the gift, so we don't jump in. So I think, you know what? I can teach, but I'm not really that good of a teacher, so I don't think that I'll do it. Or I've been given this opportunity to do something, but what if I fail? I don't want to do that. Or I know I should get to know people, but I'm kind of introverted, and that takes a lot of energy. And what if they reject me when I'm trying to jump into the game, and I don't really want to do that? And the point, really, that's being made here by Jesus is he goes, I went to great lengths to give you this gift. I'm not saying it's easy to use. I'm just saying use it. I'm just saying you've got to do that. Unity can't happen unless you use your gift. And that's the point that he makes here. And so wherever you fall on that, You know, it really is part of unity to say, I'm going to identify my gift, and I'm going to throw in. I'm going to use it. And yeah, it will be risky at times. But it's the way that the body moves into fullness. And that's exactly what he says at the end of the the last verse we're going to look at. It says this. It says, here's the payoff for unity. It says, uh, let's read it. We'll read it again together. It says, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Okay, now here's the phrase that I really want us to focus on. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And here's the point I want to make. None of us, I can't, my wife can't, none of you can, none of you, none of us can reach the full measure of what Jesus wants for us. In isolation. You cannot do it alone. That is the powerful punch of this passage. You cannot reach the full measure of Jesus without fully being engaged in community and getting the benefits of community. You need to participate and you need to receive. All of us, if you're you're interested, if your thought is, I want to be everything God wants me to be, this statement says you can't do it 
You cannot do it without community. And that means fully engaging and fully receiving. And this is not the only place in the New Testament where this is said. And it's exemplified over and over again. There's no such thing as a solo Christian. No such thing as just, I'm on my own and I can do it without anyone else. That is not a New Testament thought. And so we're called to do this. So here's the last thing. We're called to have a passion. We're told make every effort to keep the unity. And you know, it's so funny. When it comes to various things, because it's hard to keep the unity, we have sort of, and if you pull out your outlines, you're going to see this. Pull out your outline for a second. It's the only part of the outline you have to look at because it's not a slide. And on the very back end of it, uh, I want you to think in terms of how you keep the unity. And you can start with, you know what? I make no effort to keep unity. Okay? Then a step above that is, you know what? I'm going to keep unity when God gives me a peace about that. You know, I just have to pray about that. And, you know, I would be humble, but I just really don't have a peace about that. You know, Christians talk that way sometimes. It's so annoying. It's like this <laughs> spiritual gobbledygook. And it's like Paul would kick you right in the butt and say, What? What? You don't pray for peace about this. You don't pray and hope that God will give you this. No, no. The idea here is, bang, make every effort. And then there's some of us, well, I'll make some effort. And then finally, there is that attitude, I'm going to make every effort. I really, you know, I want to walk in a way worthy of the call because it's my opportunity to do it. So here's what I want you to think about, okay? I want to just walk through the three things we talked about. I want you to personally think about this. I'm going to pray for you at the end of this and for me, and then uh, Jairus is going to come up and finish us off here. Okay, so here's the first thing I want you to think about. I gave you three qualities, or Paul gives us three qualities. How do you do with them? How do you do with humility? How do you do with putting somebody else forward? Not having it be about you, but you really have this general attitude of, I want to put someone else before me. I will sacrifice for it. I will make it so that I don't look as good so that they can look better. Uh, how do you do with that? How do you do with gentleness? When you have the right to do something, maybe you're a boss, and it's like, hey, you know what? I have the right to tell people what to do. I have the right to do this and that. And I'm not saying that a boss should, shouldn't at times set the direction. But do you have this attitude, I don't need to be gentle. I'm paid not to be gentle. I'm paid to be harsh. Well, I'm just saying, that's not the way that Paul says it here. He says, that won't build unity. It might build efficiency, but it won't build unity. And then finally, how do you do with the patience? And not just passive patience, not just saying, well, I don't explode. I'm not an exploding kind of person. And maybe some of you are, and so this is an obvious one to you. But you don't take it the next step of saying, but I'm going to pitch in. I'm actually going to help somebody that's going to need help, and it's going to take time and effort. Uh, it's going to inconvenience me. It's going to be a little bit uncomfortable, but I'm going to do something about this. Maybe there's somebody that flashes into your mind right now, and you know, I know exactly who God is putting into my mind. How do you do on the qualities? In a minute, if you're like, I could use prayer for one of those qualities, I'm going to have you stand, and I'm going to pray with you as I will pray with me, because I can use help on those qualities as well. Second thing, how do you do, how do, you do when it comes to pursuing unity in, in this body? Okay? Uh, you know, do you ha are you sideways with somebody in here? And you just let it go, because it's like, life is too short. I don't want to deal with it. And God's saying, no, no, no. You can't do that. There's just not that option. 
Maybe you have a problem with people in other churches, okay? Maybe it's just the church itself. You don't like the way they worship. You don't like the focus of their attention. You don't like the way they do things, and so you down-talk that church. Maybe you have a hard time with people that live in other countries, Christians that live in other countries, and the color of their skin or their background or the language they speak or whatever the thing is. This is a call to say, no, there is one Lord and one spirit and one baptism. Come on now. No separation here. And if that's for you, if you're like, you know, I don't think I pursue unity the way that God would want me. I either just, you know, I just don't want the, the pain of pursuing it or I sort of actively have a prejudice. Then in a second, I'm going to ask you to stand. And then finally, I want to just ask you, are you using the gift God is giving you to build unity in our body? Because we need you. We cannot be the functioning unified church without your participation. And whether it's an attitude of, you know what, I've always used my gifts for me or for my family. Or maybe it's like, they couldn't use anything that I would give. I mean, I just can't imagine that I could be helpful around here. You're just wrong on both counts. We need you. We need what you'll give. And we can't function without you. And if that's you, if you've sort of held back and you're not really engaging the way that maybe now you're feeling like God's calling you to, I'm going to ask you to stand too. And we're just going to pray. All of us are going to pray for God making us into the community that he wants us to be. So if any of those hit you right now, please just stand where you are and I'd like to pray for you. Great, thank you so much. And also, there is a courage for those of you that are sitting as well, because if that didn't hit, if, if you're good on those, then that's great. That is great. You don't need to stand just because everybody stood up. That's great. All right, let me pray. Lord, we just want to ask you to help us with this. And when you tell us to live a life worthy of the call, you don't leave us out on our own to just figure it out. You give us the strength, you give us the wisdom. You give us the courage and the determination. You give us other people around us to help. And we're calling on you now to help us in these areas, whether it's the character qualities of unity, whether it's just the pursuit and the dogged determination to be a unified church. Or, Lord, if it just has uh, has to do with using our gifts, I pray that you would build us into a unified church. I pray that you'd work in our hearts. Help it be true of Huntington Beach, no matter what else is said, that it is said of our church, man, they love God and they love each other. There's not much else that comes out of that church, but boy, do they love God and they love each other. And Lord, that would be a great gift to us. And that would make us a powerful church. And so we pray for that. We thank you so, so much for the grace that you have given us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.